We are now up to chapter 4. We've, we've almost made it. <laughs> almost made it through 1 John. 1 John chapter 4. We will read the whole chapter. Our focus will be on verses 7 through 21. We'll touch on the first six, so we will read the whole chapter. 1 John chapter 4. Hear now the reading of God's word. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, but every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and even now is already in the world. You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. They are from the world and therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world and the world listens to them. We are from God and whoever knows God listens to us but but whoever is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. We know that we live in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in him and he in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God, and God in him. In this way, love is made complete among us, so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment, because in this world we are like him. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear, because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love, We love because he first loved us. If if anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he is a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. And he has given us this command, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Last week, we started with a song, and I figured we might as well do that again. In 1967, the Beatles released the song, All You Need Is Love. And the title of the song basically says it all. The problems in this world can be solved with love. All you need is love. Love is all you need. I think most of us would probably say that's probably a little too naive, maybe a product of its generation, probably not really the full truth. But in one sense, this could almost be like the theme song of John, it seems. He continues to talk about love. 
He continues to hammer this home. Last, well, two weeks ago now, we saw that the tests and how we know that we're a Christian is obedience, love, and belief. And John has been circling around those themes and continuing to interweave them throughout this epistle. Last week, we saw the incomprehensible love of God that calls us his children, that makes us his children. With how much John is stressing love, belief, and obedience, you'd almost think it's quite important, because it is. He keeps coming back to it. Each and every chapter, he keeps coming back to it. Assurance, but the call to obey. The need to love, and the need to believe. He just circles around this. And he ends chapter 3 by saying that we have been given the Spirit. And these are the, for the first six verses of, the cha- of chapter 4 deal with this, this question of the Spirit. What's going on here? Well, the, there were those in John's day that could have claimed that they were teaching from the Holy Spirit just as John was. It was also true that in John's day, there maybe were those gifts still present, speaking in tongues, having the gift of the Spirit. So the question would be, well, how do we know what's true, what's truly from the Holy Spirit? And John provides a litmus test for this in the first six verses. He says in verse 2, this is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is how we know what true doctrine is, in a nutshell. And it centers and revolves around Christ. Christ's person and his natures. Is he fully God? Is he fully man? This is where heresies often arise. And I don't want to spend too much time here. This isn't the focus of the sermon, but there is an application that can be drawn here that I think we all need to know and hear, and that is know what you believe and know why you believe it. John is telling the congregation, test the spirits. Test them. Know what's true and what's not true. Don't believe everything you hear. Is it in accord with what John is saying? Is it in accord with what the apostles have said? Is it in accord with God's word? This language about testing the spirits is, is odd to us, but John's really talking about we have the Holy Spirit and we also have the devil and his influence. The devil can influence people directly through demons, through himself, or also through false prophets, false teachers. It's all encompassed under these false spirits. So we need to be able to test them. Most of the heresies surrounding Jesus are due to his two natures. Is he fully God and fully man? And the reason this is so important is because if you separate and then diminish one, if you diminish his human nature or his divine nature, the result is an inadequate savior. The result is we can't be saved. Either he didn't represent us fully as man, or he's not fully God and able to bear what he did. That's why it's so important. And that's why we need to know what we believe. We need to understand it. I'm not saying we all need to go to seminary and be able to discuss the ins and outs of every theological issue, but we need to know the tenets of our faith and why we believe it, because there will be false doctrines that we, hear on TV, that we see and hear on TV that even come knocking on our door. And we need to at least be able to say, okay, something's off here. 
I need, to, I need to look into this. We spend a lot of time learning our vocations and our jobs and we become experts in them. We also spend a lot of time on our hobbies and we become experts in them. But we really need to spend time knowing why we believe what we do and not just accepting it because that's what the church says. Not even believing what we do simply because it's written in our creeds and confessions. We need to examine them so that we believe it and we understand it. Why does John touch on this right now? What's the point of true belief and true doctrine? Well, what he's getting at here is we can't actually truly love if we don't truly believe. If we don't have true faith, we can't exercise true love. It's just not possible. John Calvin actually spoke on this and he said, when anyone separates faith from love, it is the same as though he attempted to take away heat from the sun. If we're being called to love in this whole epistle, but we don't have true faith, then it's not true love. And that's why John goes into this, again, this belief test. Know what you believe. Now we move on to our passage today, what we want to focus on. Verses 7 through 21, and they could be summarized by saying, knowing God means knowing love. Knowing God means knowing love. And we'll look at that tonight with two points. The question, who knows God? And then the question, how can we be assured that we know God? So first, who knows God? Well, first, we know God by knowing he is love. That's in verse 7. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. John wants the congregation to love one another, and he wants them to express the love that they have received from God. If love comes from God, then those of us who come from God must love. That's what John is saying. You and me, we must put on display what is the central attribute of God, or a central attribute of God. Verse 8 shows us this and says, because God is love. Those who know God know that God is love. Now, what does this mean? We need to be careful here. This is not saying that God is love and love is God, that the two are completely equal. What we understand love to be as this this inanimate object or uh, inanimate feeling, force, emotion, it's not saying God is that, that the substance of God is that thing. No, it's it's, it's describing his being. His being is loving. It's saying that what we know as love is the direct expression of God's person and his being. And thus, everything God does is the perfect expression of love. Everything. We don't always think of that, but God's never separated from his love or any of his attributes. When he punishes injustice, he's not doing that apart from love. You can't split apart God into his attributes and then say, okay, here he's acting according to justice, here he's acting according to love. No. When we, when we define God in his, by his attributes, what we're trying to say is this is an aspect of his being that we see. But God's being is the sum and total of all his attributes. He is perfectly loving. He's perfectly just. 
And so to describe God in this way is saying his full being is loving. That's what God is. And because this is true of God, we know God, know this about him. We who know God know that he is this way. And it's really pretty simple. If God is love and we are born from God, then those who know God love as God loved. The second way we know God comes in verses 9 through 10. We know God by knowing God's love. So we first know God by knowing he is love. Now we know God by knowing his love, by knowing his, the expression of his love to us and also are expressing that same love. Verses 9 through 10. Verse 9 says, This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. Clearly we must know God if, if we live through him. We have our very life in him. And then verse 10 continues, This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. It's not uncommon for us to mischaracterize God a bit. Sometimes we can think of God the Father as up here, can't look at sin, can't tolerate sin, and thus, in our fallen state as an original sin, the Father can't love us. Sometimes we think that way. And we think, when Jesus came and sacrificed himself for us, then we became acceptable to the Father and he was able to love us. But that's not what this says. That's not what this verse says. It says that God loved us and then he sent his son. Now I'm not trying to to split this apart because ultimately we are loved by God being in Christ. But it's, it's easy to split God up among his persons and then think the father loved us only after the son but he loved us and sent the son. And this shows how God is love. This shows us further that God is completely loving and it deepens our understanding of God's love. I mean, have you ever asked the question, why me? Why did you save me, God? I've asked that. And you can't come to an answer in in yourself. You can't say, well, I'm so great. We know that's not true. So then you say, well, he predestined us, and that's absolutely right. But then you ask, why did he predestine us? This is a mystery we can't really answer. Why we were chosen, we can only say it's because God loved us. And his reason for loving us is that he's a loving God. It's not us. God is love. This is what it's saying. And so this is how we know God. The third way we know God is by expressing God's love, verses 11 through 12. John actually applies these truths in these verses, and he says, Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. The word ought there could be translated are obligated to. We are bound to. We are to love as God loved, because we can't claim to be in him and not. We can't claim to have the Holy Spirit in us and not love as he loved and not express that. We are obligated to love as he did. But the question is, do we love like that? Do we love as God loved? Loving the unlovely. Loving those who don't deserve it. Or do we need to love someone who we know first? 
those we like already will love. Sometimes we're very stingy with our love. We'll express it to our families, to our friends, but not really to others. And what's our reasonings for that? Well, we, we, we just frankly like our comfortable life. We don't want to go out and do that. We don't want to go talk to strangers. Or worse, we don't want to go love someone we have a, a feud with. We want to hang on to that. But no, John's telling us those who are in God must reject this. They must turn away from it. And we might ask then, how do we do this? How do we show this love? Well, for starters, how about getting to know the person? Rather than just, as you're walking by, someone say, hey, how you doing? Maybe if we actually meant it, we actually stopped and really took time to get to know what other people's lives are like, what they're struggling with, just get to know them. This is one of the first things and ways of showing love, showing concern. I think we can think in our heads a lot of ideas to how to love. That's not the hard part. The hard part is actually carrying it out. And it's because we have to humble ourselves enough to put what we want to the side to actually love that person. It's difficult and it's hard, but this is how we know God. By showing his love to others. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 18, 17, he says that we can show love by giving to those in need. This is another way we show love. Giving to those in need. And verse 18 of chapter 3 says that our love can't be in word only, but must be in action. People of God, it's not difficult to grasp this. I think we all already know it. It's doing it. That's what's hard. Verse 12 says, though, that when we do this, we are actually perfecting or making complete God's love. What does that mean? That we're perfecting God's love, that we're making it complete? This is truly amazing. What it's saying is that the love God showed for us has not reached its intended goal until we express it towards others. We've talked about this before. It's not something we take in and hoard as our own. It's something we take in and express. It's like we're, we're mirrors. We're mirrors. The light comes and bounces off, uh, off us and goes directly to someone else. We express it, and this is how God's love is brought to its goal. What an amazing God. This is how we love God, by loving others. It's amazing to think. No other religion has a God like this. That you show your love to me by caring for others. That's what I want. Love others. We can put that on display So who knows God? It's the one who takes God's love and finishes it, meaning manifests it and exhibits it to others. So this is how we know God. We can go through the verses and see, okay, those who love, those who do this, those who do that, this is how we know we love God. And now we move to our second point in question. How do we know that we're doing this? How do we find assurance in it? And there are four ways in these verses, verses 13 through 16, that we find assurance. First, assurance is by the Spirit. In verse 13, it says, We know that we live in him and he in us because he has given us of his Spirit. When we love, 
and confess faith and obey God, we are producing the fruit of the Spirit. When answering the question, what is true faith, Lord's Day 7 says, true faith is not only a knowledge and conviction that everything God reveals in his word is true, it's also a deep-rooted assurance created in me by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit gives us assurance. And the New Testament is full of examples of this. We don't always think of the Spirit in this way, but one of the major fruit that the Spirit gives us is assurance of our faith. It's all over the place. We read this last week in Romans 8, and I wanted to read it, to, read it again. Romans 8.15 says, For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. So when you question your faith, ask the Spirit to produce assurance in you. He is there indwelling us. The New Testament also, in many other places, talks about the Holy Spirit being somewhat of a down payment of our faith, proof of our faith from God, that we belong to him because he's given us his spirit. How do we know we have his spirit? Where's the fruit of it? Are we living it? That's how we know we have his spirit. When Jesus told his disciples that he must depart, he said that he would send them the spirit and that it would be better for them that he did. So we need to be sure we don't neglect that. We have access to many fruits and blessings in the Spirit. We must pray to him. We must live that out. The second way we find assurance is in verse 14, by apostolic testimony. John says in verse 14, And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. John saying, we have seen and testify. This makes us think back to chapter 1 and how he began it. We have seen and testified. John was an eyewitness. The disciples, the apostles, were eyewitnesses. And we don't want to forget what a great witness we have in God's word. John's not just telling us that Jesus existed as a man. Historically, Jesus existed. He's not saying that. He's saying Jesus existed as a man who was our Savior. John's bearing witness not that he's just man, but our Savior. This is where we find assurance also in the words, in God's word, in the words of John. Don't forget that John saw Jesus perform the miracles that he did. John was there when Jesus was transfigured. John was there when Jesus was crucified. John was there when Jesus was risen. John actually touched, saw, heard, and ate with the risen Savior. He's saying, I saw this. He is your Savior. Have assurance in that. Don't forget it. The Savior was sent and accomplished his goal, and John's bearing witness. And when you need assurance, look to your Savior. God sent him for the reason to be our Savior. Remember this, Jesus is not your, well, I should say, remember that your salvation is not based upon your good works, it's based upon your Savior. Not how good you are, not even how strong you feel your faith is. Often we won't feel that our faith is strong. We can doubt it for many reasons. Sometimes we can doubt our salvation Because the thought that we don't believe scares us. 
And I've had that. You think, what if I'm not a Christian? And it scares you. And you think, well, what do I do now? Turn to your Savior. Turn to him. And, and we move to our third point, turn to the confession you make. Your assurance through confession. Verse 15 says, if anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in him and he in God. This is the confession we make. You find your assurance not in how you feel. You find it in saying, no, I believe this. I believe that Jesus is the Son of God who came and died for my sins. And if that's the confession you make and truly believe it, you have no cause to doubt. Trust in Jesus, the fully God and fully man, as your only hope of salvation. And remember, if it bothers you enough that the thought that you don't believe scares you, then that's probably pretty good evidence that you are saved. If you aren't, if you aren't truly saved, why would that scare you and bother you? Now, I want, to be, I want to be really careful here. It's hard speaking about this at times because every one of us suffers differently. Some of us suffer from lack of assurance and, and need to be really pointed out, no, you are saved. I know you don't feel like it, but you're saved. Some of us don't seem to really care, even if they are saved. They don't suffer from assurance, but maybe they need some ex- ex- exhortation to continue on and be obedient. And so it's hard Because you don't just want to say, yeah, make this confession and you're saved because it has to be a confession that you truly believe. But even as I'm saying this, if you're scared that you don't believe and you turn to your Savior, then you don't need to doubt your salvation. You have no cause to doubt it. The fourth means of assurance we have is by God's love. Verse 16 says, And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him. At the end of the day, we find our assurance in the fact that God loves. That he loves us. That he sent his son for us. We find assurance in God being this loving God. But this just doesn't leave us somewhere. We don't just walk away saying, okay, I'm assured of my salvation. John also points out what the fruits of our assurance is. What that means for our lives. Verses 17 and 18, John says that it gives us confidence on the day of judgment. Now last week, if you remember, we talked about a child, as an illustration, a child who is told by his father to clean the garage. And if he cleans the garage, he's not afraid when his father comes back. Because he's been obedient. When we do these things, when we are assured of our salvation, when we see the love in our life, when we see God's love directed towards us, we're not afraid of the coming judgment. Because we see perfect love. And as our passage says, perfect love does not fear. This fear here isn't that we don't reverence God. It's saying that we don't fear him. We're not afraid of him that when, he, when he comes. That's what it's saying. That's what our assurance gives us. A future hope to look forward to his coming and not to shrink away from it. It's because we have family resemblance. Verse 14 says, because in this world we are like him. 
We don't need to fear the final judgment because we are like we are like him. We look like him. We bear the family resemblance. This is what we talked about last week. And John's revisiting it again. And he continues in verses 19 through 21. He restates once again basically the whole argument. He says, For anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. This is an argument from the lesser to the greater. If you don't love the person right in front of you, how can you love God who you don't see? If we don't express love to those around us who God's put in our life to express love to, then how can we know him? Often we, we can separate it. Often we can think loving God and loving people are two different things, that they're, they're different. Sometimes we can even think it's easier to love God. You think, I'm here, I'm at worship, I would never miss worship. I would never miss devotions. I pray continuously. I, I love God. But what about loving others? If you obey all God's commands to not do certain things, do not murder, do not commit it, oh, I do that, I don't do any of that, I do all that. What about his command to love? Do we do the positive of his commands? Do we love others? If we claim to love others, I mean to love God, and not love others, this passage says we are liars. And that should jolt us a bit. Clearly not because we want to question our salvation. John's going through great pains not to have us do that but to spur us on to good works, to spur us on to love others, to show when you aren't acting this way, you are, you're, you're acting like a liar. This is the Christian walk. This is sanctification. None of us are going to love perfectly now. We're not going to love perfectly on this earth, but we strive to. And if you're striving to because you love God to love others, that's the, exactly the fruit John's talking about. That's where you find assurance. There's a a passage in Matthew where Jesus teaches about the sheep and the goats that he's going to separate at the coming judgment. And this passage fits perfectly with our passage today where Jesus actually is applying what John's speaking about here. We can't read the whole thing. It's, it's more lengthy. It's in Matthew 25, 31 to 46. And Jesus tells the sheep to come into his kingdom because they fed him, they clothed him, they took care of him. And the sheep say, when did we do that? And Jesus says, when you've done it to the least of these. And what I want to read is when he talks to the goats, when he talks to those who haven't done this, Jesus will tell these people, depart from me, You who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? And he will reply, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. 
That's what this passage is saying. We're not even aware of how we express God's love. When Jesus is talking about the sheep and the goats, the sheep don't even know it. They don't even realize it. When did we do this for you, Jesus? And he says, it's because you loved others. You did that love for me. And when he talks to the goats, it's the complete opposite. These were the people who claimed to know the Lord and didn't love and didn't express it. And Jesus tells him, you didn't know me. I'm love. I love others. And my people love others. They express my love and they express their love for me to others. And that's what we're called to do today. That's what we're called to do in our lives. To love our God so much that we actually love others and care for them. And if this is the way we understand love, maybe the Beatles were onto something. If we understand love as God's divine love for us through sending his son and we believe it and we obey it and then we express that love for others, then all you need is love. And love really is all you need. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you. We thank you again for your word. We thank you for this call to love. We know that we would struggle We know that we do struggle, that we will struggle, but we ask that you would sanctify us. Holy Spirit, you dwell in us. Give us assurance of our faith and assure us in how we love others and how we carry that out. Bless that. Be with us in this upcoming week. May we think of ways to love others, not to fulfill some task, not to just be able to check something off a list. But may it really be an overflow of our love for you. That we love you so much that we love your people. That we'd express that. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. We will respond in singing.